Did you know you're more likely to stay at your job if you have a best friend at work? And you're more likely to learn from a peer at work than from your boss. Relationships in the workplace are really important, but as work changes, our relationships are changing too. So today we'll explore how those are changing with one of the world's leading experts on friendships. Welcome to Work Better, a Steelcase podcast where we think about work and ways to make it better. I'm your host, Chris Congdon, and I'm with our producer, Rebecca Cherbowski. Hey, Chris. We are so excited we got a chance today to talk to Robin Dunbar. Robin is an anthropologist, an evolutionary psychologist who specializes in human behavior at the University of Oxford. He is a really big deal when it comes to (laughs) friendships, and his most recent book is called Friends, Understanding the Power of Our Most Important Relationships, and I highly recommend it. Another one of our friends, Dr. Tracy Brower, is going to join us after we hear from Robin. Tracy's the Vice President of Workplace Insights at Steelcase, and she's going to help us understand how the workplace can help support some of the ideas that Robin has about building and maintaining relationships. And we want to ask a favor of our friends out there in the audience. Before we get started, if you know anybody who needs to have a better day at work, we'd really appreciate if you would share this podcast with them. Absolutely. Robin joined us today from his home in the UK. Thanks for being on the show, Robin. Great pleasure to be here with you. So, Robin, just to get all of us grounded, you're famous for something that's called the Dunbar number. And so I was wondering if you could give us just a quick overview of what is the Dunbar number. Okay, that's very easy. It's the number of people that you can maintain meaningful relationships with at any one time. So it's not somebody you've known way back when you were at uh, kindergarten or anything like that. It's the number of meaningful relationships you have right now. And that's about 150 people. It varies according to personality and age and uh, various other things, but it's about 150. Perhaps the range is 100 to maybe 250. But all those relationships aren't created equal, right? I can't imagine maintaining the same depth of relationship with 150 people. It would be difficult. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Um, So there are two major kind of dimensions to that. One is family versus friends. So this set of 150 uh, people that you have relationships with consists typically about 50-50 extended family and friends. So in, in a way, they're all the people you would make a bit of an effort to catch up with at least once a year is, is another way of looking at it. So there might be the, you know, those extended family members you only see at Christmas or send a card to at Christmas or something. Um, the other dimension is really the emotional closeness you have to the individuals. And that in turn is dependent on how much time you invest in them as an individual. And that creates a series of layers, um, a bit like the ripples on a pond where you throw a stone in. So if you imagine yourself as the stone, the ripples on the pond created by that look like the layers in your social network. And in other words, you have a very small circle very close to you, but the height of the waves, the emotional closeness, if you like, is very high. As you go further and further out, it includes more and more people, but the height of the waves gets lower and lower until kind of once you're past the 150, it, they're pretty much died away. But there are some further layers out beyond that that stretch out 
to include things like acquaintances. So kind of like concentric circles, would that be a way of for us to kind of envision that? that yes. Our closest relationships are those ones in the, the middle. And those are about, if I recall, 1.5. Oh, okay. That's the very, very innermost layer of, if you like, intimate relationships. And that is at about one and a half. And that's because half the population has one intimate relationship and half the population or the other half of the population has two. I see. And those are usually the women because they have not only a romantic relationship, but a best friend forever, which is kind of somewhat foreign territory to the guys. Uh, but out beyond that, the layers have a very, very strict size and the layers count cumulatively. So each layer includes the people who are on the layer inside it, but there are those layers occur at 5, 15, 50, 150. And that inner core layer at 5 seems to be incredibly important, both socially and emotionally for you, but also to have huge health benefits as well. And we, we refer to that layer as the shoulders to cry on, friends, because they're the cavalry who are going to come riding over the hill when your world falls apart. And they will do it without thinking. They're the only ones who will kind of drop everything and come to your aid. Again, you know, five is the average. Again, you know, sort of people vary perhaps between about three and seven, uh, depending on how kind of maybe introverted versus extroverted they are might be one uh, dimension that's important there. But, you know, typically it's about five people, half family, half friends. What about those relationships kind of on the outer rings of the circle? Are are those important to us as well? Or could I just let all of those people go and just focus <laughs> focus on the people in the middle? You would save on Christmas presents, yeah. <laughs> yes, there you <laughs> um, The answer is no, not really, because this is the classic distinction that the sociologist Mark Granovetter drew between strong and weak links or strong and weak ties in your social networks. So the strong ties at the center of your social network, the ones that kind of provide you with various kinds of support. But the outer layers, the weak ties running out to about 150 people or so, are the ones that have an important function in terms of um, providing you with information in the contemporary world, at least, on, you know, on sort of where the cheap deals are at the moment or who the mm -hmm. interesting upcoming comedians are to go and uh, see or what the best films are this yeah. week and, on uh, Netflix or whatever it may be. Each of those layers provides a different kind of benefit, really, and we seem to invest our time in those, the people in those layers, um, it, roughly according to the importance of the benefits they provide. So that inner core of five people, the shoulders to crown friends, they get 40% of our total social time, effort, emotional capital, however you want to measure it. it it's a huge investment in those five. Mm -hmm. And that amounts to something in the order of, I don't know, on average 30 minutes a day probably of your time. Of course, you don't necessarily do that every day with them, but you, uh, some you may do. Whereas the people in the outer circle, 150, probably get only about 20 seconds a day from you. So you kind of have to pull together a large number of days over time to get a decent uh, enough uh, window to spend the evening with them. You know, sure. probably that would only come up once a year or something. Sure. You know what I find so interesting about that when I think about 
our experience and, you know, like working during the pandemic, particularly when a lot of us were working from home primarily, is, you know, I felt like I had kind of my core group that I stayed closely connected with. But, you know, I really missed those casual conversations with the barista at our our little coffee shop at work or the lady who checks us out in the cafeteria, you know, people that I would chat with informally. And I, I really felt those relationships, like I felt like something was missing without having those kinds of interactions. Is, is that typical that most people kind of feel like you need those weak ties uh, in our lives? I think so. I think that's probably been most people's experiences during lockdown. Um, and this is interesting in the context of online conversations, as it were, that you might have with, with people via Zoom or, or, or one of the other social media, is that actually the, the ones that worked well online were the very close-in ones, especially if they're a family. It seemed to work better with family. Uh, but you didn't have those kind of casual acquaintances, you might think of them, out in the outer edges. And, and I think people did paradoxically miss those. You know, they, they clearly do contribute something to your your working life. They're the, you know, the equivalent of, you know, casual meetings uh, around the water cooler, if we still have them, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the corridor at work or something like that very often. But, and those did seem to die. I mean, there's, there's some very large scale evidence showing that during lockdown, it was contacts with those casual people at work that just vanished. Paradoxically, people spent more time on Zoom, <laughs> largely pointlessly because they weren't learning anything, um, but they felt they had to be on Zoom. So they're spending much more time in meetings than they did in the period leading up to lockdown. Um, but most of those meetings were the people they already knew well. They're, they're kind of work team, work group, if you like. And it was the casual meetings that they were not getting those casual meetings that came about through having a face-to-face meeting with with a bunch of people from another department that uh, you'd never met before and that sort of um, creates some sort of uh, relationship uh, that's presumably important afterwards and, and, and sort of has a life of its own. And those just didn't happen. So, Robin, I, I want to shift into talking a little bit more about work relationships. But before we do that, just again, I, I want to help keep everybody kind of grounded. In addition to the Dunbar number and these 150 relationships, uh, you also have done work about uh, something that you call pillars, like these different factors that influence who we become friends with. Could you just talk about those a little bit? Yes, I mean, this is one of the very striking things that was actually, I think the first people to notice it was sociologists, in fact, about 15 years ago, that if you look at who people are friends with, form friendships with, it's very much tends to be people who are very similar to you. So this is what's known as the homophily effect or the birds of a feather flock together effect. And it seems that that effect is incredibly powerful and overwhelming in the processes involved in making relationships. Now, some of those things, homophily effects are um, what we might think of as endogenous. They're part of you that you can't change, as it were. So it's a massively strong 
tendency for women's social networks to consist predominantly, in fact, about 75% of women's social networks are women, and 75% of men's social networks are men. And that number <laughs> remains absolutely stable from the age of five to the age of 85. It doesn't even budge, you know. Um, and of course, the other 25% who are uh, the opposite sex are predominantly family members whom you have no choice over. <laughs> You're stuck with them. Uh, but given a choice, we kind of seem to prefer to make friendships with, with members of, of the same gender as us, uh, the same um, ethnicity as us, the same age uh, as us, the same personality as us. These, these kind of rumble on in the background. Layered on top of that, cultural effect, which um, consists, it's almost like a supermarket barcode of who you are and the community you belong to. So it's something you learn probably during your teenage years where you're learning what it is to be a member of a community and that you never quite lose. And one of those features, for example, is your dialect, which of course is, you know, it's sort of... <laughs> You can't get rid of it once once right. you've learned it. Now, those make up what seems to be a set of seven dimensions, or as we call them, the seven pillars of friendship. Um, and they are uh, having the same language or better still dialect, um, having grown up or come from the same geographical area, having the same hobbies and interests, having the same worldview, which is a combination of your religious views, your moral views, your political views, in other words, how you think the world works and should work, your uh, career trajectory, which explains, for example, why lawyers have mostly lawyers as friends. Interesting. Um, because they have something in common to talk about, essentially. And then the last two are kind of interesting because they're a bit left field. They are having the same musical tastes, and having the same sense of humor and uh, of all those, your worldview and your musical taste turn out to be the best predictors of whether a stranger, complete stranger, would make a good friend. We seem to put a lot of emphasis. You know, if you don't both turn out to be Led Zeppelin fans, you're away. <laughs> yeah. You know, I find that so interesting. I was thinking about that uh as I was getting ready for this conversation. And I thought, you know, in the age of Spotify, I don't even know what my musical <laughs> tastes are anymore. I just, whatever playlist is, you know, good for Sunday mornings or dinner yeah. with friends. You know, yeah. I'm like, I don't know. It all kind of gets jumbled up. Um, this is really interesting. And I know we could spend a lot of time here, but I want to talk a little bit, you know, with, you mentioned how long it takes to create relationships or how much time we kind of invest in those, but I'm curious how quickly those can erode if you're not investing time in those relationships. Like, do they just kind of fall off or does it take a while? It, it, it rather depends. Um, and it, it really depends on the level of trust involved in the relationship. So basically all these relationships are underpinned by trust and, and what these things like the homophily effect and the seven pillars are really doing and the amount of time you invest in somebody uh, uh, socially is providing you with a guideline to how much you can trust them. So if it's not a very strong relationship, those relationships tend to just fade away because you just stop seeing the person if, if they annoy you once too often. 
Um, uh, and that's probably characteristic of, of most relationships. So your, your kind of lifetime history really consists of little groups of people who are further and further removed from you because they go further and further back into your life history, as it were. And, and you can sort of still remember them, but you kind of don't really uh, have that. You haven't seen them for a long time. You don't have that much uh, in common with them or much interest in them. But, you know, they're there somewhere in the nether reaches mm -hmm. of the solar system. Uh, but the ones that are much more traumatic, I think, are the inner relationships, as we're familiar with that, with the breakup of romantic sure. relationships, I suppose. They, they tend to end catastrophically. This is true of best friends forever in the case of women. It's true of your inner circle, shoulders to cry on friends. If you know you, And it's partly because you're very tolerant of them. Once they kind of betray your trust or stand you up or what have you, you're inclined to forgive them. Um, uh, uh, but if they notch up too many of these failures, then it just creates this catastrophic um, breakup where you say, that's it, that's once too often. I'm not talking to you again. Those relationships are extremely difficult to reconcile. They're, they're the kind of end up as deathbed reconciliations if they're oh. going to reconcile at all. They're extremely tough. Well, since we're talking about trust, I feel like this is a good time. Let's shift and talk about relationships at work a little bit. And I know this probably seems like a really obvious question, but you have done a lot of research on this topic. And so why does building relationships at work matter? I think the answer, very simply, is the world of work is a social world at one important level in the sense that you know, most of us work for you know, large companies with many thousands of employees. But I suppose it's true even if you work for a you know, very, very small startup with just half a dozen people that you're spending a lot of time with them. In fact, you spend more time <laughs> at work probably yeah. than you do at home, uh, certainly in the weekday. And so you're building relationships with them. Some of them indeed do become friends outside work as a result of that, and perhaps later when you've moved on. So those kinds of relationships then affect how efficiently things happen at work in the sense that you're much less likely to stand people up if you know who they are uh, and have some sort of relationship with them and you know sort of if they ask you to do a favor um, or do their department a favor you're much more likely then to say yep it's maybe not convenient but you know glad to help you out mm -hmm. um, so those kind of very very small casual everyday social processes dramatically affect how well the system works and of course Trust becomes very important uh, in in that whole process. If you have a breakdown in trust in a in a large company, that's when you you end up getting trouble. Um, but there is another sense in which the social the world of work being social is really important, and that's the effect that your social life has on your health and well being, particularly your mental health and well being, but also even your physical health and well being. So, if you're in a friendly environment, you know, which is a socially pleasurable place to be in. And indeed, you know, when you get out of bed in the morning, you can't wait to get into work <laughs> <laughs> to see your friends, then that's going to have a knock-on consequences for your mental and physical health and well-being in very dramatic ways. And that means 
less time off work, so your employer should mm-hmm. be excited about that. But also, you know, you're less likely to be suffering from depression. Depression is a result of things that happen at work, perhaps the stresses at work, or depression created by outside events, uh, because you're much less likely to suffer from those things, or indeed to succumb to physical illnesses um, uh, that you otherwise might be quite resistant to. So just like kind of winter flu, if you like, uh, those kind of illnesses, you know, you're just not going to be taking so much time off work and, and you know, you're going to be much more bouncy and excited about what, you, what you're doing at work, you know. So there's a double advantage from the employer's yeah. point of view. I don't know why they don't invest huge sums of money. <laughs> <laughs> making sure the the world of work works effectively yeah. as a social environment. Well, I don't know that I bound out of bed every morning going, "I'm so happy to go to work." But but I I do understand how much of a difference it makes when you're in a very yeah. collegial kind of yeah. cordial relationships. You care about the people that you work with, so you make an extra effort because you don't want to hurt their work yes. or you know cause them to be in a difficult situation. So that makes a lot of sense. And then the other thing I wanted to ask you about, we've obviously gone through a massive change in how work happens for a, a number of us, not the entire workforce, but um, the adoption of remote work, fully remote work or hybrid work with people working sometimes in person in the office and sometimes from from home has been a, a major shift in how we work. It, it's accelerated dramatically, of course, through the yep. pandemic. And so I'm curious what you think about how that phenomenon has impacted or changed our relationships. I, I think like everything else, there have been costs and benefits, or at least there are costs and benefits that we probably need to uh, take into account both as employees and as employers uh, if you're running a business. Um, clearly, you know, uh, not having to commute into work five days a week on the um, crowded subway and being jostled and hassled and, and so on and not having to get up so early is a great boon. And you can take the kids to school and you can, you know, go to the right. gym at lunchtime and all these kinds of things without necessarily impacting on your um, work uh, output. In fact, you know, you might actually do be more productive because you're happier in, in yourself. But there are disadvantages, and, and that's very clear that we risk uh, beginning to feel left out if we're not there when something happens. That's the great risk you run as an individual as it were. Um, so there is a personal cost potentially that you, know, you might just get overlooked because when the managers are kind of desperately looking around for somebody to ask to take on some uh, major new project, right? you know, it's the person they happen to see walking down the corridor uh, that kind of jogs their mind as it were as to who mm-hmm. might be available. There is always that risk. I think much more of a risk is that it's very difficult to have creative teams if they're not working face-to-face with each other. Something about that face-to-face engagement which really seems to spark um, creativity. You know, you might say, okay, well, what about Zoom, Uh, you know, sort of will allow us to do that? And the answer is it just doesn't seem to work so well. Certainly the work we've done, and I think other people have done, in fact, uh, looking at how satisfied folk are with 
interactions they've had with their friends. They're, they're, you know, I, we did their five best friends um, by different media are very different. Face-to-face uh, -face interactions come out head and shoulders above pretty much anything else. Sort of video embedded conference type environments like Zoom do quite well, but they have lots of problems in the sense that there is a limit on, on the number of people we can have in a conversation together at the same time of four people. Uh, if, if you get more than that, two things happen in, in everyday life. Either it breaks up into lots, the group breaks up into lots of small conversations, or it becomes a lecture. And so the great danger with Zoom, because you can't retreat to a corner of the room and have a, have a separate conversation, is event gets dominated by the four people with the loudest voices uh, and everybody else sort of... Which isn't necessarily great for creativity, no, no, right? And it, you know, everybody else sort of disappears off into their posts and their emails, what's going on outside the window. So, you know, it, it, it is kind of good. I mean, there's clearly lots of advantages to it, but there are these penalties, and I think it has to be managed very, very clearly. And I think the other big downside... Um, is simply that some of us can do it and some of us can't just by the nature of our jobs. And the people that have to be there day in, day out, the people that work on the you know, security on the door, the receptionists at the, at the desk, um, nurses, teachers, all these sort of people. Manufacturing. The person who makes the sandwiches in the cafeteria, they have to be there and you're in danger of... Um, creating a two-class society of those who have and those who have not, as it were, and uh, can go and sit, sit at home and, and work. And, and I, I think that's a big risk. It flags up, you know, sort of alarm bells for me about, you know, sort of um, jealousy, is that the right word, within, within yeah, the organization? Equity. About right? equity, exactly. Yeah. So, Robin, I want to go back. You know, we've talked about the time that it takes to build relationships. So what would you say that we've learned overall about how often we need to be together, how we need to be together? Is, is more time better than just making sure you've got some quality time? What, what advice would you give us on that one? At the end of the day, the problem is that relationships are very expensive to build. They're also very serendipitous. You, you can't make people be friends. The best you can do is provide the opportunity, provide the environment in which to do it. And, and it's interesting if you reflect back on what a lot of the big employers in the early part of the 20th century, how they thought about this. So, you know, we're talking about the Unilevers and the Marses and, you know, the railways and, you know, sort of, they all had clubs on the factory site, you know, for, for their people, tennis clubs, social clubs, what have you, uh, where the workforce could gather and, and just socialise with each other after work because they, and sometimes they actually said this, you know, this is, an efficient workforce is a happy workforce. You've got to kind of provide the facilities which, which make your workforce socially engaged and with each other, uh, not completely sort of going off outside um, the factory estate, as it were, uh, for their social life. And we've lost that. That kind of all disappeared in the 50s for various reasons, which you know, we needn't detain us. But that's kind of all gone. And probably people wouldn't want you know, works tennis clubs anymore these days. Sure. Um, but I think what we have to ask is, are there other ways of doing this that would have the same function, would provide this 
context in which people can meet up on a kind of casual basis and, and build unexpected serendipitous uh, friendships with each other across the various departments of, of the building. And I know some organizations, um, you know, have made big efforts in, in this case. I mean, I know in, in, in Silicon Valley, some of the big IT uh, companies there, you know, have a sort of regular Wednesday after work beer and hamburger uh, mm-hmm. event just, you know, to allow people to meet. And, and um, the one we talk about in our book, because uh, one of my co-authors uh, was there and part of it, was um, SAB Miller, the the big brewing giant, uh, SAB, the Miller bit being Miller Light, which you'll be familiar with, SAB is South African breweries. But what they did was in this, at the, the entrance of every single factory of theirs and administrative uh, building, as it were, there was a pub. Uh, they made beer after all. So they had a microbrewery there and, and, you know, a sort of nice little social environment. And Sam Rocky, uh, like, and that was the thing that you'd stop and yeah, have a drink people with. Just, your... You know, sometimes you did, yeah. sometimes you didn't. But if you had half an hour or so, an hour, you stop by and have a drink. And Sam says the Facebook groups that were set up during the course out of these, you know, after work beers or lemonades or whatever uh, people chose to have, some of those Facebook groups are still going 20 years later. It's just amazing how you know, the friendships that were built up out of them. So, you know, here's some ways in which it can be done, which are probably more suitable to the kind of modern environment. But I think it's, it's you know, we should take a note of how um, the old guys worked <laughs> and how they, <laughs> how they became as, got their companies as big <laughs> as, as they became and figure out how we might do it in today's world. I think that's a helpful thing, for leaders of yes. organizations to be thinking about is making those kind of, as you said, you can't make somebody be a friend, but you could at least create the conditions yeah. in which somebody is more likely to be able to um, interact and, and form those kinds of relationships. It's interesting, Robin, because in the UK, in your country, and here in the US, and my colleagues in Canada, like we're the ones that are most leading in this remote hybrid work situation. You know, other parts of the world, it's not being adopted at at the same rate at all. Um, And I just find that interesting, like, you know, culturally, uh, there are differences you know, in our, in these kind of English speaking countries, Australia Mm. is another one that has this strong tendency to adopt remote or hybrid work. I'm, I'm just curious what you think about that. Yeah, that's, is interesting, actually. I I mean, to some extent, um, all of us English speaking ones, and maybe particularly the North, in addition, the North Europeans, um, in a way, we're a bit more individualistic than um, some of these other Southern Hemisphere countries, mm. um, you know, who, who are a bit more kind of community-oriented, if you like, collectivist, yeah. Uh, and maybe that's uh, part and parcel of the story, maybe. You, um, you you kind of worry a little bit about the effect that that might happen. I'm, I'm always at this point reminded of the Japanese uh, habit of having collective workforce 
uh, gymnastics every mm-hmm. morning, which they did nationally. <laughs> the state radio played 15 minutes of uh, move and groove music and everybody stood between their desks. And of course, we used to laugh. We over in the West, we used to laugh at this and say, typical of the Japanese, you know, I mean, you know, right. maybe they could do 15 minutes extra work every day. And I'm afraid my answer to that is, hmm, why do you think they were so successful building radios and building cars? Because their workforce right. just had this engagement with each other and felt enormous loyalty to the companies they worked for. Now, the great test, of course, is they stopped doing this about 10 years ago. And what's happened to the Japanese economy since? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's an interesting point that maybe we all need to, whether we sing together or dance and exercise together. Robin, I know I could talk to you for hours, um, and I'm just so grateful that you were able to take the time because I know you're very busy um, between writing and teaching and everything. But thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's a great pleasure to be with you. Thank you. I am very excited to have my friend Tracy Brower, who is the Vice President of Workplace Insights at Steelcase, join me again. Tracy is the author of The Secrets to Happiness at Work, as well as regular contributed Forbes and Fast Company. And Tracy also helped hook us up with this interview with Robin Dunbar. And I gotta say, she's a little bit of a geek when it comes to talking about sociologists like Robin. So. I knew that she was absolutely the right person to talk about this. And also because she wrote an article for Forbes that was called New Study, Making Friends is Hard, But Work Can Help. So Tracy, thanks for talking with me about this again. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. I've been dying to talk to you about this because, you know, I know how much you respect and admire Robin and how much, you know, you really value his work. And so one of the things that he talks about, which just made sense to me, is the idea that relationships are expensive, if you will, to build, not necessarily from a monetary point of view, but they take time, you know, to actually cultivate a, a relationship. And you know, you you can't make people be friends, you know, that just kind of has to happen. And so um, you wrote about research that says that making friends at work is, it's like really one of the most important places where as adults we make friends compared to like high school or college. And, and why do you think that is? Yeah, I've been thinking really deeply about this because the role of work is so important to us now. And mm-hmm. there, I think there are three reasons that work is especially important in making friends. One is the continuity factor. You know, you work with people over time. Even if we switch jobs more frequently yeah. today, every year or two, you still get that chance to work with people over time. That's mm-hmm. one. Another is just the idea that you get to share both task and relationship, right? We roll up our sleeves. We do the, the thing together. We accomplish the project we solve the problem, but also we run into each other at the coffee machine and talk about our weekend, right? So you get both the task and relationship. And the other thing about work is you get that ebb and flow. You get those ups and downs with people. So I see you today and, you know, we're kind of on top of our game and tomorrow maybe I seem a little more down or you do. And we get to kind of read each other and check in with each other on those variations. So those are three reasons I think work is a really great nexus for making friends or at least being friendly with colleagues. Absolutely. 
And I still have to thank you for giving me great restaurant recommendations in Madison. <laughs> this is the advantage of having work friends, right? But it's also that we're doing work together as well. So I wonder if we want to try and help people in our organization build those kinds of relationships. If we're leaders in an organization, how do you think we can help curate that for people? Yeah, and this was a great part of your conversation with Robin, right? Like really creating the conditions for those things mm -hmm. to happen. I love that. There are lots of things, but just two I would point to primarily. One is I think leaders can really help emphasize shared goals, common goals, you know, purposes that we share together across departments, across team members. That shared sense of goals tends to drive relationships because mm -hmm. now we have something in common. We have that common ground we're seeking. And another thing, I think we tend to focus on social stuff. Like mm -hmm. we get together and do a, you know, cooking class as yep. a team or we go axe throwing and those yep. can be great. But actually the research suggests that even more significant bonding happens over task. So another thing leaders can do is really put us together on a task, on a project, on a, a situation where we have to put our skills together and combine our perspectives and think together about solving a problem. Those shared tasks are another really great leverage point, and we develop relationships through those because mm -hmm. we learn about each other and we have those side conversations and we right. appreciate each other's strengths that we're bringing to the table. Right, and we feel a sense of... Um of bonding when we're going through something difficult with each other, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's one of the primary sources of bonding. So yeah. um, we don't want to necessarily manufacture tough times, but <laughs> I mean, work can be stressful, sure. right? It's pretty normal sure. to have ups and downs. And so when we go through those together, that's actually a really big deal. Well, this makes me feel better because I'm really bad at party planning and planning those social things. So at least I'm, I'm helping my team if we're, <laughs> we're creating right. circumstances where we all have to work together on something. I love so, it. You're yeah. so right. Thanks for that. So um, another thing that I was really intrigued with in this conversation with Robin was about creativity and, you know, whether we can achieve that better face-to-face -face and how we deal with you know, the hybrid world that we're living in and people being in different locations. And so I'm wondering, what do you think it is about those kind of face-to-face -face interactions that still is really tough to replicate online? Yeah, I think, I mean, part of it is neurologically, we tend to want to sync up with people. We mm. do postural echoing. We tend to do mirroring using mm -hmm. our mirror neurons. I lean forward and so do you. You nod your head and so do I. Okay. That syncing up is harder to do virtually, even if we're on camera together. So that's part of it. We have this instinct to do that syncing up, mm -hmm. and that's powerful in building relationships. I think the other thing is that we also get validated through nonverbals, maybe to a greater extent than we think. So, mm -hmm. you know, like we're in a meeting together and you lean forward just a little bit when I'm speaking mm -hmm. or I nod when you make that comment. Right. And that tends to validate and give us a sense of recognition and, and value in terms of our own sense of ourselves and our accomplishments and our contributions. And I think the other thing that is actually a really big deal is the unexpected. You and Robin talked mm. about this, right? Like we run into each other and you mentioned something that triggers something in me right. that we never could have planned for. Right. And it's like, 
oh my gosh, that idea makes me think of this thing over here. And that not only adds energy to our day, but adds to the value of our thinking and our perspectives. And so that unexpected is part of the face-to-face as well, um, because you can't necessarily plan for it and put a meeting on the calendar for a video call. Right. I get that. I think we could probably talk about our friend Robin for a lot more time. (laughs) Um, But today, I'm just really grateful that you came and joined me, and then we can pick up this conversation later. That's great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here with us. If you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, share this podcast with a friend who's maybe one of your colleagues, (laughs) and visit us at steelcase.com slash research to sign up for weekly updates on workplace research, insights, and design ideas delivered to your inbox. So Rebecca, what's happening next week? Next week, we get to talk with Jen Lim. Jen is founder and author of Beyond Happiness. She's also CEO of Delivering Happiness, which is a company she founded with Tony Shea, the late CEO of Zappos. She's sharing her greenhouse model for the workplace. It's an idea she says leads to growth, purpose, and business success. It's a a great way to think about the workplace. We hope you'll join us for that one. And thanks again for being here. We hope your day at work tomorrow is just a little bit better. Many thanks to everyone who helps make Work Better podcasts possible. Our creative art direction is by Aaron Ellison, editing and sound mixing by Soundpost Studios, technical support by Mark Caswell and Jose Jimenez, and our digital publishing is by Aureli Ariano and Jordan Marks.